This is Jean Nathan, your host for Crosstown Conversations. We're going to close out our um, series for Women's History Month with Mayor Latoya Cantrell, who has proven to be the right mayor for our times. Fearless, working very hard to do the right thing, even when it's not easy. And um, here's Latoya. Um, so let's let's start kind of at the beginning. What what initially do you think was a kind of key indicator to you personally? And uh, what, what was the inspiration, the confidence um, and the mission to take on leadership that came through in your early years? So I don't wanna pin those years, you'll have to tell me. Was it when you were like four? A lot of my music people and artists all talk about, you know, literally singing on choirs in church at three. Um, I don't think that in the non-creative uh, uh, fields, it's, it's quite as early. So tell me about those early years. Well, my early years uh, was actually in, um, in middle school. Uh, and in in middle school, when I was the uh, president of my uh, school, uh, my my sixth grade, but then also of the school when I was in eighth grade, um, my grandmother was very civically minded and engaged, uh, and I went to meetings with her. You know, um, from the chamber uh, to the um, the the Sun Village uh, recreation, you know, meetings. Um, so I learned my voice at an early age, uh, just going places and being very active with my grandmother. Mm. And so, um, and that um, once I found my voice, um, I just did not want to uh, be quiet in mm-hmm. a way that, um, that helped people, um, that addressed uh, real issues, not being afraid to, um, get in the middle of something. It wasn't my business, but I made it my business because I saw the larger impact on other people. So I would say when I was in middle school. So um, good trouble is kind of what it sounds like, a little bit of the expression that we've learned to use since um, um, our famous congressman yes. and civil rights leader um, uh, passed. Uh, that expression has come up a lot, but I, I would say that definitely applies to you. Um, so what were some of the um, issues that came before you, even as just um, a, a, a student president that, again, sort of shaped uh, the focus of your thinking and, and your approach? Um, so when I um, graduated from middle school, eighth grade, and went on to high school, um, I noticed that our guidance counselor, uh, was not meeting with uh, Black students. Um, mm-hmm. And I had brought this up um, at a, a chamber meeting because I was college bound. You know, I um, was definitely wanted to go to go to college. I wanted to go to and attend a historically Black college and university. I, I wanted to be engaged at that level. And so uh, when I noticed that there was an issue there, I, I raised the uh, issue actually at a chamber meeting. And at that time, I didn't realize that, you know, I had a uh, my former school principal was a part of the chamber. You know, I had, of course, chamber members, um, superintendents, that's what they called them, or supervisors of the county um, participated in these meetings. And so um, after I raised it, I went on back to school 
and the guidance counselor was waiting for me uh, upon entering the campus. And she was, oh, she was hot. She was upset. Livid, Livid would be the word, right? Yes. And so when, uh, because I was starting trouble and I was making trouble for her and here I was this, this young person and how dare I? And so at any rate, um, she started meeting with uh, black students and many of my <laughs> friends, you know, went on to college. We needed to know what our prerequisites um, were, you know, were not just for the colleges that we were seeking. How to prepare. But how to prepare, you know, um, and so uh, we got it done. There was um, a, a memory I have of Charles Neville. I, I once did a documentary with the Nevilles and, and um, he talked about how when he was in school, he had expressed to his guidance counselor and others that he wanted to be a nuclear scientist. And they basically said, um, no, we don't think so. You can't be a nuclear scientist. And uh, that has been an important um, issue for me as we, we developed a program with Creative Alliance of New Orleans for called Creative Futures to address exactly that, especially for creative students, making sure they understood creative careers and how to prepare for them. Because again, our sense was guidance counselors really don't know that much about that. So mm -hmm. I think those, those guidance counselors are kind of important. Or a teacher, was there a teacher that you had that was an important inspiration to you? I had one that really helped me get into college into a certain program. How about you? Well, I did as well. Um, he was actually a football coach and he was a history teacher, Coach Hardy. And he was from uh, Oklahoma and he was a graduate of Langston University out of Oklahoma. And um, he was very instrumental to me and uh, many uh, African-American students at my high school. Uh, and many uh, of actually my friends went on to Langston University. And, and graduated. So mm -hmm. um, I don't know where uh, some of my peers would have been had we not been influenced uh, by Coach Hardy. Lewis and Hardy. You said history teacher. So I'm going to assume that means, as it was true for me as well, that history was an important subject for you. It was. It was because wow. um, I've always been connected to that social aspect and behavioral aspect of people. So, and I guess that's why I went on to major in sociology, you know, at Xavier and, and of course, um, political science. And, and I've been kind of living true to those disciplines um, throughout my life. How did you happen to choose um, Xavier as your, as your college? Oh, Lord, you would ask that, uh, Jean. Now, <laughs> initially, I wanted to um, be a doctor. Uh, and doing your research and, and with uh, HBCUs in particular, uh, there are, um, they have their, their disciplines, you know, that they are just great at and they're known for. And Xavier is known, you know, for placing uh, more black students into med school than any other school in the United States of America still, even as it relates to pharmacy, their great pharmacy program. So that's what led me to Xavier. But I actually uh, started writing a professor, Professor uh, Gram, uh, Gramlich, Gramlich um, who was a, uh, the director of psychology, uh, the chair at Xavier. And I started writing him when I was a sophomore. And um, it piqued my interest. Of course, psychology is human behaviors and mental processes. And so uh, sociology was more tied to uh, the sociological behaviors of people. 
And as I was learning the city and learning people, uh, it really intrigued my thoughts of wanting to do more uh, for society, for people, uh, to meet them where they are and to improve their quality of life overall. And so I changed my major uh, to sociology. And let me tell you, I also learned that uh, biology and chemistry were not my top <laughs> subject. Yeah. <laughs> and so you got to know your strengths and, you know, and right. your weaknesses. And I, that became very clear to me. Yeah, I, I had uh, dreams of a similar, uh, I was thinking in, in the direction of um, medicine and uh, architecture at one point. And I decided um, my math skills were not, now, architecture surprisingly uses a lot of math skills, or maybe not so surprisingly, but. Oh, no, it I does, figured, absolutely. Yeah, when I figured that out, I sort of um, chose history and politics and, and the marketing and so forth. Um, well, and then you chose Bob, so you were good. Yeah, that's a very good choice in lots of ways. Um, so um, how, uh, what was your experience like when you first came here? You're from California, from Los Angeles. Huh? Los Angeles. Um, that's, that's a, there's a culture difference there. I'm, I'm curious to know your first impressions of the city here and um, how you adapted. You know, it, 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 there are people who come here from elsewhere who figure it out, adapt, do well. There are others who come here and never really get in the groove and they wind up having to leave. So um, you obviously um, got in the groove. Tell me about what that was like. Well, first of all, I, um, my paternal family is from Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, mm -hmm. So my roots are Southern roots. And uh, my family was definitely a part of Jim Crow South and the struggles there. And so growing up, I was uh, going to Birmingham every summer, you know, from I started going at six months. I started preschool there. I did a semester of second grade there every summer. I was there from June until September until I was uh, almost, you know, I, well, I was a teenager. Uh, and so the South is in me and it's who I am. And when I was looking for a college and I didn't want to be too far from Birmingham and I want, wanted to attend Xavier and I knew that from 1988. And so 1990, uh, that's at the age of 18, I came to New Orleans and I knew that I wasn't going back to California. So um, very much uh, into the fabric of the people. Um, I saw the contrast amongst uh, um, the black community here in New Orleans. Um, you know, I lived off campus, third in St. Charles. I saw the drastic change from St. Charles Avenue to two blocks away and how all hell could break loose. Right. Um, I would ride the streetcar to Louisiana and take the Louisiana bus to Xavier. So the contrast of people seeing despair and also hope you know, on those rides to school every day um, made me, and also what I saw on the route, you know, going through from, from um, high income areas to stricken poverty was something that I had never um, seen before in, in that way. And how could you be so wovenly and so tightly woven in a community and in a neighborhood, but you go one block and all hell breaks loose and it's like, no one cares. So that's, that's really what tied me to our city 
and to my life's work in this city. And that was very different from where you grew up in Los Angeles. You didn't see that disparity as much. I did not see that disparity that much. And even if you were in the hood, so to speak, the hood wasn't dirty. You know, trash wasn't everywhere. Um, it, it was just a, a, a different, um, uh, just you can, you can see the despair on people's faces and it was just in your face. Um, and, and even the housing developments, you know, they, they weren't, I had never seen, I, I just couldn't believe we would, would allow our people to live in those types of conditions and so close to, um, to wealth, so close to wealth, one block away. So, so again, so they treated city services and other kinds of services in Los Angeles more equitably? Would you you didn't see part? the despair like that, no. I, I didn't grow up, I didn't see that. And I grew up in LA and then I did um, experience um, the shift um, from presidents and also crack cocaine, um, you know, the epidemic. So I was in LA during that period. And of course, um, seeing when you talk about inequities, they were there now. Um, no, no doubt about it. And especially, you know, when crack cocaine hit the scene and that was like an eraser in my family. And that's what moved, caused me to move out of LA proper to the Valley and live with my grandmother uh, because of crack cocaine. My, wow. my stepfather who was in LAPD, you know, was, became addicted. Uh, wow. I had a young um, stepbrother, 18, get killed and shot on the streets of LA. Um, I, my mother was, um, you know, laid off from her job being a social worker. It was just an eraser. My block changed immediately. Uh, it, so it was, it, so that was my experience. Um, and of course that impact in LA, uh, eventually, uh, hit the rest of the country, you know, it was LA and New York first. And then of course it moved and shifted to the South. Um, at later times, but, um, and of course it had an impact on the city of New Orleans. Yeah. Being indeed. an urban community. Right. I remember um, in my uh, years just after college, I remember traveling the subways and seeing um, heroin addicts. We had heroin uh, took a, a big slice out of New York and during a time. And uh, that was, um, that was in your face, that you couldn't escape that. That was on in every neighborhood yeah. uh, as well. Uh, what, do you what do you attribute that, the, this, the, the, this, the stark disparity in New Orleans to? Uh, I mean, well, honestly, uh, yeah. Well, I contributed to just a lack of investment in people and also uh, in, in the environment where people are living, neighborhoods, um, in communities, just a lack of investment over time. So it wasn't just a single period, it was over, over time, historically, a lack of investment, a lack of wealth um, opportunities to create and transferable uh, wealth um, in, in our city. And uh, we're seeing, still seeing the implications of that, the impacts of that. They are, um, they're from generation to generation. It wasn't long, actually. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know the years, so you'll have to tell me, but it wasn't long before, let's see, you get here again in what year? 1990. 
Okay, so it's about a decade and a little bit over a decade before Katrina hits. And I don't, I don't know in between your first arrival here and your schooling and um, Katrina what you were doing. So you might share that with me, but uh, it's, it's with Katrina that I become aware of you, of course, mm -hmm. when you were very, very active in Broadmoor in, in trying to bring that neighborhood back, very intentional, very effective. So um, what made you move so deliberately into, I mean, I'm hearing the background, of course, this commitment mm -hmm. that you've developed in trying to look at the inequity, basically, it's what we're all talking about right now. It's a much more visible issue now than it was. Even a few years ago, I can remember not seeing us. I read the New York Times and the local paper, of course, consistently. I'm, I'm a dinosaur, so I still read print. I believe in it because certainly it gives you a, current, a kind of um, emphasis on stories that you don't get online. So um, what, what um, where do you move into being literally very active in a city and what and and what what sparked you what what where was the open door um so i i worked for the greater new orleans education foundation where um, we were studying the public school system and where kids were losing a day a week um, of class time and not being on task and of course um, we had high school graduates that could not read at grade level but graduate and getting you know diplomas um, and so that was my door, I would say, because it allowed me to engage with the community and parents and young people uh, and understanding um, what the disparity gaps really were, but how they were impacting the lives of our families and our children. Um, I got married in 1999 and my husband and I purchased our home in Broadmoor. And we decided to move on Louisiana Avenue Parkway in Broadmoor, which was the area of the neighborhood where the needs were the greatest, whether it was low performing school, a mediocre library, drug trafficking, slumlords, um, blight, you name it. And um, I moved right in the middle of that, of that with Did the you intention. Did deliberately or was yeah. it the cost of your home or what was the factor that? Well, it was. Well, it was multiple things. One, we were young. I was 27. You know, we wanted to buy a home um, that we could, of course, afford. Um, and we found it in Broadmoor. We wanted a diverse community. Um, and I knew that I wanted to be a part of making things better. I'm not wanting to um, move people out, but embrace people and have them embrace me and let's do something. And so I moved, we moved into Broadmoor in 99. And shortly after that, I organized Louisiana Avenue Parkway, Delachay and Toledano Streets. And we formed the Louisiana Avenue Parkway Area Association. And we began to work on drug trafficking and slumlords and um, speeding cars down the parkway and cleaning up the neighborhood. And that caught the attention of the Broadmoor Improvement Association. And I would get notes in my door and ask me to come to the meeting. And, um, and so I asked my neighbors that I'd organized if they would give me the blessing to go to the BIA meetings because, you know, they were perceived as being the white, you know, the white, you know, community organization. And the people that I had organized in my area were majority black. I mean, that's lived, you know, in this section of Broadmoor 
um, more heavily. And um, so they gave me their blessing, you know, to go to the larger table. And I said, listen, you know, our voices need to be heard and magnified at a larger table where it's reflective of the community at large. And so I started participating and the residents asked me to be the president of, well, first join the board and then a year later be the president of the organization. And then a year after that, Katrina hits. So it was, that was kind of like the door in and of itself, but it was open. The door was open um, by residents of my community. Hmm, really? That's, um, uh, that had to make you at the same time that you were taking on those challenges, which is gonna be part of the, the, uh, the interview coming up, um, how you take on challenges, but um, it must have been gratifying to have that invitation to you to get involved in that level. I yeah. mean, to have done what you were doing and then to actually be asked by an organization that was viewed as not being on the side of everybody in that neighborhood to take that on. That had to be a really important moment. Yeah, it was really good. I, um, well, I was able to bring people along so while we had, you know, black residents living in Broadmoor who had in their minds that, you know, they they counted themselves out, you know, from being at the at the larger table and um, demonstrating in a real way that not only they mattered, but collectively, you know, we need each other, and that became crystal clear after Hurricane Katrina um, and how we organized ourselves again, you know, to demonstrate that our neighborhood was coming back and it wasn't going to be the, the section of Broadmoor where the needs were the greatest that could be the green dot. It was a chance and an opportunity to say, hey, either all or nothing. And it also demonstrated though, that with the resources that we were able to garner, that the strong needed the weak and the weak needed the strong and able to propel change and also demonstrate that the community was, was actually coming back. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, we have the higher income areas of Broadmoor that could immediately demonstrate by the work, meaning their homes being renovated, that they were indeed coming back. You have the areas that were less um, driven by economics that had more Light, you know, more slumlords, uh, and and also we had homeowners, but the pace of recovery was much slower, and the econ economic levels were much less. But that demonstrated the need, because if you couldn't demonstrate the need, then no one would help you. So that was like the strong needed the weak because they were part of Broadmoor, and the weak needed the strong because we needed to demonstrate that we were coming back. And, and together we were able to do that. So it's very powerful. I've had meetings where uh, uh, I've brought people together from very different universes. I do some work in St. Bernard with the arts on occasion. And um, I've had uh, events where uh, there were shrimp fishermen and um, uptown arts patrons all at the kitchen table together and listening to their conversations. That brought me to tears. And yes. um, 
I, I seeing trying to make those connections is is I totally agree is is so important, and you've continued to do that. And um, I guess you might say that Katrina, as um, devastating and as city altering and and person or altering altering as it was, was a precursor for the pandemic that we have been living through in this past year. The pandemic the um, economic challenge of, of, of people just losing their jobs left and right. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then the social protest movements that evolved out of the, what we learned during the pandemic, learning how much harder um, the pandemic was hitting people of color and how neighborhoods that had higher levels of pollution, we really did nail finally the impact of that in terms of you know quantifiable results in 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 the covid rates that were affecting people in those neighborhoods so so what you did in katrina not to mention of course your city council work and your mayor's work but really prepared you for the pandemic and um again for um, a life of challenges i mean clearly you've been dealing with these challenges over and over again and i think if there's one thing that people really do know about you and respect and it's an important factor is the way you have responded to these challenges so i want to know a little bit more about what was your initial when the pandemic starts kicking in what was your initial feeling about it and tell me about the steps you took and which you felt you feel were the most important and impactful and of course, we're still in the middle of it. We're by no means out of it. And I'm so proud of the fact that you and our city did not jump out there in advance and, and, and precariously when there were slight indications that things were getting better. You really, you held the course. And that was hard because people are banging on your door. Let me open, let me open. And you've said, let's open when it's right to open. So tell, tell me about your initial impressions of that and how that evolved. Right, so um, now you, my initial impressions um, <laughs> were actually built upon uh, a, a two almost, you know, well, full two years of uh, crises, one crisis after the next. Yeah. So whether it was, you know, floods that we experienced right after me being inaugurated to hurricane season 23 days later uh, to, um, you know, having a development um, collapse and kill three of our residents to Mardi Gras to that took people's lives from 2019 and even 2020. Um, with accidents there to uh, a cyber attack, um, you know, in our city to the busiest hurricane season, you know, ever eight named storms uh, to having um, uh, Hurricane Laura and, and Zeta where we had to uh, open up our doors and welcome our, um, you know, our people from Lake Charles, over 12,000 evacuees, you know, in our city. Uh, you know, all of these things, happened before the pandemic. Well, of course the hurricane was in the middle of, but I would say multiple crises really prepared me and my administration, meaning my team, you can't do this alone. No way, no way. Didn't do it alone in, Bra in Broadmoor, you know? 
So I believe that it helped us. One, we were prepared because we were kind of living crises after crises. Um, my team had, um, we were so cohesive, you know, the, the cohesion was there. Um, how I uh, organize and interact with my staff, it matters with my public safety team. And so when the pandemic hit, we were like, okay, you know, bring it on. You know, at this point, we just felt like not only were we prepared, but we knew we had to make tough decisions. And I was definitely, you know, not afraid to do that. It wasn't easy, but when you're focusing on the data and the science and also lessons learned from other countries and other cities, uh, both during the pandemic and also lessons learned from rebuilding after Hurricane Katrina. So, um, you know, I, I think I am a crisis uh, mayor. <laughs> you know, all mayors, all mayors have to face some crises mm -hmm. in their administrations because you represent the whole city and there's no city that's ever not gonna have crisis during an administration. But without a doubt, the, the extent of the crises, the, the, the expanse of them and their impact on the city under your administrations uh, or administration and administration to come perhaps um, have been um, way uh, beyond what I think most cities have dealt with. Um, I, I, I wondered uh, how, how have you um, negotiated your, your personal relationships with the people that you have had to kind of corral to your um, perspective. So the tourism industry, God knows they have suffered terribly and, and they just wanna be open, just, yeah. just get us open. Not really um, appreciating the, how dangerous it is. Although, I mean, we certainly have seen how, it, how it's impacted in other states where they open too soon. But that's, that's, a, that's a difficult task to tell people you have to keep your, store, your stores and your hotels and your restaurants closed. Tell me about some of those interactions. I want to, I just want to hear, I want to be like a, a fly on the wall um, after, the, after the fact. Oh. Give me an example without naming names or anything of a, a couple conversations you had to have that were very difficult conversations. And you are known for not holding back. So, uh, I mean, as a, as a girl from the South Bronx, and I often say, you know, my, my tribe is Cardi B, AOS, J-Lo. <laughs> Those are my people, that's who I grew up with. So um, I, I'm also known for not holding back. So I, I appreciate other people who um, are not afraid to open their mouths and say what needs to be said and then take, take the whatever punishment and or rewards that come from that. So right. the sample. Well, I would say on the on the you know from the start of it, it was really focusing on the people who are the backbone of the hospitality industry. And if you don't have the workforce, then you don't have a hotel to run or the industry or the economic engine, um, not only for our city but for the state, but even for those business owners. So being laser focused on the workforce, meaning the people of this city, the cultural bearers of this city had to be that top priority. And um, it was, you know, you felt gut punches sometimes when you would hear uh, that um, they were not the priority and they were expendable. 
Um, and so um, just the thought, you know, that they were expendable was a problem, but would also tie to the disparity gaps and the wage gaps and the wealth gaps and the lack of, um, you know, um, equality and, and um, those injustices that have been prevalent in this city for a mighty long time. And it didn't start with the pandemic. 300 years. Yeah, so it's just, um, you know, they were very tough conversations, but honest and um, and I wasn't going to be bullied and, and put uh, in a box. Uh, and and I, just, I just didn't, you know? So my way though was communicating I communicated daily uh, with the uh, hospitality industry. Every day I had a call with them at 1 p.m. because I didn't want to shy away. I wanted them to know that I cared for them because absolutely that matters. They matter. And I wanted to not only hear from them, but I wanted to keep them updated about where we were, how we were experiencing deaths in our community, you know, how this Virus, virus was really impacting our people and the people that they depend on, you know, to, to um, fuel the industry and also share the progress. You know, when we started to beat back that and flatten the curve, that was real. So it was a demonstration to where if we follow the science and the data, it really does work. And but you would feel the pressures once we started to do well, then everybody wants to say, open up, you know, this is the time. And, and so it was the back and forth. But I believe that through the year, we, we were able to prove that we were making the right decisions at the right time, but also creating that balance to where I would relax restrictions and trying to open back up. But when we saw the spikes go up, we, we had to shut it back down. But the light is is where, now where we can see it and that's through our vaccines. And I no longer meet daily with hospitality, but I do meet weekly every Wednesday at 1 p.m. So that hasn't stopped um, at all. That's reflected also. Um, I, I'm a news junkie. I have to be, even though my show is once a week. I, I, I always want to be really aware of what's going on. And, um, you know, I, I follow your statements. I follow the New York Times maps that show the states that are in trouble and the ones that are not. And I've always taken pride literally in how we look on those maps, the shading that we are. And then Steve Perry's um, comments that he's put out uh, I, I know that he probably is one of the people that was most concerned about, um, you know, not opening, but his wording has been very careful. And it did to me reflect that there had been communication. I mean, I could look at the writing and see um, the engagement between mm -hmm. him and, and the city and, and your administration and you. Speaking of your administration, um, I, I, I personally, without knowing a lot of the people am extremely impressed with the intelligence and the commitment um, and the uh, actions. So words is one thing as they say, and action is another right. of your team. And I, I want you to tell me about how you identified that team because it's it's unique. I mean, I, I would say again, 
the administration that most your administration most reminds me of, and this is meaning no disrespect to anybody, but Moon Landrieu had put pulled together when he first came in to city government. He was it was a, a, a it was a shift, a big shift in culture as to uh, an administration prior to him that was very white community oriented and he was bringing in the black community into city hall, but he did it in a way that really worked. And uh, it was through some very committed and intelligent and determined people. So tell me about your team. And so, how you uh, well, and how you yeah, my team, you know, I, I call us, um, you know, some will say uh, we're, we're, we're quirky. Um, I, I call us a freak show. <laughs> I wouldn't say quirky. Why? Well, what? what I mean by that is um, everyone has something to bring to the table. And um, they may not look like you or think like you, like it's a diverse team in not just race, but in skill sets. Um, um, but one thing that binds us is our moral compass. Uh, we want to do the right thing. We work hard. We don't lie. And we care about the advancement of this city. And so, um, and that's reflected really in the work and, and the dedication uh, of the team that we have at the table that we've assembled. And because of how we meet, I meet with my team as a team and, 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 and we share from the various perspectives of departments that they run so that as a whole, everyone has a sense of the priorities, um, how we're moving through to get to the end goal, um, how we have to communicate effectively, um, especially the challenges during a pandemic where you can't be in, you couldn't be in a room. Um, but I had to find a way to keep us talking and keep that dialogue going. Um, and we're just. And not only that, we've been through crisis after crisis over a two-year period. So that has a way of, of bringing people together, but also it, it forces you in a way to respect the values and the skill sets and the capacities, the strengths, and even the weaknesses of all team members. So we complement one another. We fill in the gap, you know, for one another and... Um, yeah, so it's, and so we, we, you know, we, um, I call us a freak show every now and then, you know, <laughs> I, and I say, we, you know, we, we, um, we put on a, a good show, <laughs> you put us together. It seems like also what another interesting uh, aspect of it, they're all, um, again, professionally capable, they have the, as you say, the science and the and the, um, the the capacity to do their jobs has been very noted. They're not political appointments; no. they are competency and um, a vision. I would yeah. say, um, people and, uh, and 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 also quite a few from out of town, quite a few locally, and they've meshed. And that again is not always the easiest thing to achieve. So I've been impressed with that interaction. But not too many from out of town. Not too many out of town. But some some key people, your your um, CAO, CAO and your um, your sewage and water board mm -hmm. 
Gassan, he's been amazing and, and so has your CAO. So uh, I've been impressed with how they've, again, some people come in here and they just, they just get hit between the eyes. They don't know where they are and they wind up not really grabbing hold and staying here, but your folks have. Um, I, I, there's two other areas I wanna explore before we run out of time. And that is women, because this is Women's History Month and, and you are, um, yeah, you are the first woman mayor in New Orleans. And, and one of the things that I've noticed during this whole pandemic, and, and also actually the Trump years, and you know, I've been um, a total um, addict of the cable shows. And uh, for a couple of reasons, we're watching a phenomenal history that's been happening in these years, both bad and good. Um, and there has been um, a lot of really smart, informed people on those shows. So I'm, I, it's like going to school every night and listening to those, those programs. And, and not to mention really getting a grip on history and, and, and how the dynamics of trying to push back on nasty stuff and, and, and overcome it and go forward in a positive way has been really intriguing to watch. I've seen a ton of women in positions that I had no idea in, in security, in health, in political positions, you know, and then the ones who really were change agents like the Stacey Abrams. Yeah. I mean, it's just been remarkable. And again, I've just had tremendous pride in, in my sex that um, women have been so important in the protest movements in, in governments and um, in the media, uh, the women in the media who have been up on what's going on and doing their job, despite being accused of being this or that, too liberal, whatever, they just have, have kept at it. So um, how do you see that going forward? And specifically for you, um, I'm interested in what you're trying to achieve going forward and where you see your next challenges within your second administration, but also your future after that. So the, the roles of women right now are just remarkable. And, and tell me about yours. Well, yeah, the, the, the roles are definitely uh, remarkable. And, and, and Jean, I say, you know, I'm the first woman. I know I won't be the last. So a part of that role is making sure that I'm intentional about that door, you know, being open. Uh, so that the next woman can come on through. And, and that starts with grooming and reaching back. And even our young girls, you know, it matters. Um, but women are definitely a strong part of my administration now. You know, our city attorney, um, Ms. Sunny LaBeouf, my director of, of IT, uh, Kim, Kim LeGrew, uh, just, you know, remarkable um, individuals uh, and many, many more. But as I see it, it is making sure for the future of this city, quite frankly, it's the women who are the head of households in this city, you know, that are, um, um, they're living also uh, in, 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 in poverty, you know, 40, over 45% of our children are in these homes that are living at or below poverty. And so as I look to the future of this city, it is through that that um, lens of, of, of social and economic mobility um, so that we can uh, really move, move this city forward in a way that is equitable. Uh, and so, you know, by focusing on um, not only the growth sectors in this city, getting off primarily um, hospitality, 
but strengthening and building up those growth sectors that women can go through, but also men as well. We know that women bring men along. Women bring the entire family along. So it's not overlooking our men at all or our young boys at all, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it is doubling down on the needs of women uh, who continue to be the heads of households uh, in this city and that have a a, a tremendous role um, that they play on the ground. And I see that will have an impact on the future of this city. So when you leave office, presumably, or hopefully you might say, and I'm not allowed to say that, but uh, anyway, um, in five years or four and a half or so. By God's grace. Yeah, I'm running again and I'm hopeful, you know, I do want to continue to serve uh, in the capacity um, as mayor. Um, I feel that um, after, um, you know, dealing with crises after crises, I know that trouble doesn't last always. And I want to be a part of making this city better and moving through a real recovery so that we're um, better off than we were even, you know, pre-COVID. And in many ways, uh, since Hurricane Katrina, in a way that be that really can be transformational. So I do look to serving the city an additional uh, four years and leaving it better than how I found it. So at the end of those four years, uh, can I ask you to pinpoint maybe one or two things that you would like to have achieved and be able to point to as concrete examples Mm -hmm. of what you're saying, of trying to really shift the paradigm of the city, um, address the uh, social and economic uh, inequities. Uh, What would you point to? I'd like to do this and this before Mm -hmm. I'm out of office. Sure, so on the front end of it is making sure that the city of New Orleans gets her fair share of what she generates in this city. And that speaks to the economics, you know, of, of this city. Um, we started that effort, you know, I did when I became mayor, uh, focusing heavily on infrastructure and getting a little bit more of our tax dollars, you know, from the state level. I, I foresee that being an ongoing uh, need, but also the reinvestment, using our resources to reinvest not only in our infrastructure, but in the people of this city, in the environments and neighborhoods in which they live in, blight, you know, eradication, cleaning up this city. You know, we have to do that. And it is closely tied also to the public safety aspect of our city. You know, whether it's that gun violence piece, which I know is tied to the economics also of our city, nothing stops a bullet like a job. And so making sure again, that we are reinvesting in the social programs and the mental health and housing uh, and the wage gap. And what I mean by that is you still have the majority of the businesses in this city are small businesses that are black owned businesses and they make up only you know 2% of the receipts. That has to change. And so while I have taken that on in ways that I can control with government, for example, the contracts and streamlining the process, making sure that we're debundling those contracts that are making it more, um, um, the opportunities much greater for these small businesses to bid as primes, you know, to, you know, and where the larger businesses can come on as subs. So like really flipping the script, turning it around, and we're demonstrating that right now. But when I think of the future, 
I want us to be able to point to how we have increased those receipts, you know, in our city, taking it from 2%, moving it up to, you know, 30, 40%. Um, that's aligned with the businesses in our city. Of course, as relates to the fabric of our neighborhoods and housing and affordable housing, dealing with homelessness uh, in a way um, that is unprecedented, but that speaks to the social you know, mobility and upward mobility that we need to give people. Of course, the infrastructure, I wanna nail that, which is not just sewage and water board, it is the system in terms of how we drain our city, how we, keep it dry, how we um, keep um, our utilities going in a hard freeze. You know, all of that is tied to infrastructure um, and also transportation. You know, I want to increase the accessibility of our people. Um, so all of these things I know from public safety to cleaning up this city, to the economic and upward and social mobility of our people are things that we can do and that I can do in my time here, because we have to ensure that the city of New Orleans, one, remains the most Afrocentric city in the United States of America. We're unique here. You know, our cultural bears are different. So we have to be more intentional, in my opinion, of making sure that our people can stay in this city, that they can live here and afford to live here. But not only that, that we can be a city to where our folks that moved out after Katrina, see the growth and say, you know what, I'm coming on back home. Because we were 67% African-American when Katrina hit. We're 59% today. So we, it will not be 15 years to lose that population. I give it five. So I view my time in office between now and next five years a critical point in this city of making sure that we retain the culture, our cultural bears, and the affordability and accessibility of the people in this city that make her, New Orleans, who she is. And undoubtedly, that's the African-American community. That is um, almost a closing line, but I, I can't uh, quite close off and we are running out of time pretty soon without um, asking you about your um, obvious commitment to the culture of the city. You've, you've mentioned it during this interview. I didn't ask it, uh, the question point blank, but um, uh, we know uh, we've dealt with this a, a little bit together. And you, you tell me, um, uh, again, what your vision is on the culture side and why you are so interested and committed to it. And that goes back to when you first got here and I was asking you what, you know, what was it like uh, to you and as different from where you came from? A lot of culture in Los Angeles, a lot of culture in New Orleans. How, how did you perceive it? And, and what's your, um, again, what's your key hope in your achieving uh, in, in the realm of the cultural um, community? Yeah, well, there's very little culture in Los Angeles and the culture that is there are from New Orleanians who migrated to LA during the Jim Crow South. That's mm -hmm. number one. Number two, um, as it relates to the cultural community in New Orleans, it's making again sure that um, as we're investing in people, that we invest in them um, directly so that they um, are not just being um, used um, at, in a commercial uh, for people to come visit here, 
but that once people visit here and spend money here, that those resources and revenues are rein reinvested again in those cultural bears. So no more pimping our people, so to speak, no more pimping our cultural bears, letting them get their fair share based on what they contribute. And I think that is a game changer. Uh, one of the things was the first time ever cultural bears are now uh, a part of our contractual system in city government, that they can sign up and to be a vendor in our city and get um, through our Office of Cultural Economy tied to the hospitality industry. So no longer do they have to pay to be a part of a group that when a convention comes in, that this is how they know that one is coming, but that the city takes ownership in that and the city um, makes sure that they're connecting our bearers with opportunities in a way that have never happened um, in the city of New Orleans. So putting in them at the forefront so that they can get a slice of the pie because it's a billion dollar industry in this city um, as it relates to hospitality. And so we wanna make sure that they're put in a position to get a slice of that pie. The, you know, the pie is big enough you know, for everyone to eat from, but we have to be intentional about that and making sure they get an adequate slice. And that hasn't happened. Are you saying, um, uh, just to drill down into one little specific about that, you know, um, the, the, the uh, um, New Orleans and Company uh, has a, keeps a calendar of groups that are coming here. And um, I find it essential for, you know, we, we do, my, my nonprofit organization does um, cultural tours. And, and that list of what's coming is essential to build your business. Um, but you have to be a member to have access. Exactly. So are you saying that there's another way now for people to access that list? Well, one, yeah, it's one with the city of New Orleans being in creating its own list that we're not having to be beholden to an organization, but that the city of New Orleans as a city really takes ownership and responsibility of connecting our bears to opportunities that are coming to this city and in ways to where they're not undercut, you know, and, and so that they actually, conventions, for example, have budgets and even big, you know, budgets uh, that they're willing to spend. And so not undercutting them or not even have musicians undercut one another because they're not tied to the larger um, pie, slice of the pie. So we're having to bridge that gap and it's, it's moving in the right direction as it should. I hate to ask uh, a question that's kind of um, hard to answer and somewhat controversial as we close the interview, but I can't resist asking there's there's a, a lot of um back and forth over the definition of a culture bearer i'm interested in yours well for me it speaks to our musicians our artists in all forms all creatives whether it's visual performing you name it it speaks to our social aid and pleasure community our clubs you know it it, it speaks to um our, our children who, again, who are musicians and playing the drums. And it, it just, it speaks to every aspect and not to um, disrespect uh, any of, of those uh, artists. And I want to relate to them as they relate to themselves, uh, you know, so I don't want to uh, leave anyone out or behind. 
but it's all encompassing. And collectively, uh, they are who they they're who New Orleans is as a whole. And it goes right back to the people who make this city special. And it's tied to definitely the roots, uh, uh, you know, uh, of this city from when we, you know, were French and Spanish. And when, you know, we did have the infusion of, you know, our, our Haitian uh, community, when we did have, you know, our Africans coming from, you know, West Africa and Ghana, you know, all of these things make this city so special. And our cultural bearers, in my opinion, are um, not only a reflection of that, but have grown out of those various cultures that is the true gumbo of this city. So I, um, on behalf of the city, <laughs> and um, wish you all the luck in the world going forward. And, um, and I know that uh, people are pulling for you and for what your administration is doing, especially, and again, faced with the, the train, the training effect of of crises you've had to deal with. And um, I hope this won't be the last time we get to talk. I look forward to the next round um, whenever that happens. But um, I, I appreciate very much you took the time to visit with us and our audience at WBOK. Well, thank, thank you, you so much. much. Really appreciate I'll it. I'll see you and Bob soon. Have a great Easter or Passover or pretty soon Ramadan. This is your host for Crosstown Conversations, Gene Nathan.